0: Thanks Rich. Morning everyone. Um, So we have come to the last of the Sermon on the Mount talks and we're specifically going to be focusing today on the final part of it but also some of the things I think that we can draw from it and then take with us into the next things that we're going to look at as a church. So we'll have the same pattern, um, 25 minutes or so I will share some ideas, some thoughts, and then for 15 or 20 minutes, there's an opportunity for you to come back with two things really this week. Either thoughts that have come to you during this talk today, so thoughts that you've had as I've been talking or during the morning. That's number one. Number two is any thoughts about the Sermon on the Mount, which you either had last week but didn't have a chance to share, you've had this week. Or you kind of have in the back of your mind and you think, oh, I really need to share this. So we'll have two kind of bits going on today. A little bit as I'm talking, but also some things about the Sermon on the Mount as we come to a conclusion um, today. So the first thing I want to say is that John's gospel is different from the other gospels. And there's, there's a technical reason for this. Uh, Most of us will know there are four Gospels. The Gospel means good news. So these four books are meant to be good news. And many of us, if we were taught RE in school, we will have been taught about something called the Synoptic Gospels. And the Synoptic Gospels are so-called because there are three Gospels, three Gospels that are really similar. And so they're called Synoptic And the general thinking is that um, there was a book of some kind called Q um, or Quella, which was probably some ideas written down by the disciples and then gathered together and then shared by word of mouth. And then probably Mark wrote the first gospel. It's shorter, it's punchy, it's pretty factual and then Matthew and Luke took Queller and Mark and kind of developed it for different audiences. So Matthew developed it for the Jews. So much of what Matthew writes is um, Judeo-centric. It's about the Jews. It's about how the New Testament fits with the Old Testament. Whereas Luke had a slightly different idea, which was, I wanna show how this good news of Jesus is relevant to the whole world. So remember, Luke doesn't just write Luke. We think he writes Acts as well. So when we're talking about Pentecost, we're talking about this feeling that Luke's got, that he wants to share this good news, not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we've got a different feel for those gospel. Mark goes and this and this and he did this and he did that and bang and then he did this and then he did bang and then chapter 16. Dum. And Matthew is going, he came through a tradition that is from Jewish Jewish tradition, a Judeo-centric tradition. We've got Abraham in there at the start of Matthew's gospel. We've got all of these heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. And then so much focus on the kingdom of God and what it means. Luke, on the other hand, is saying this isn't just for the Jews. This is a message for all people and for all time. Now, John is probably the last gospel to be written. And in John, um, what we see is a very different field. So we think John wrote his gospel somewhere round about the turn of the first century. So round about 90 to 110 AD. And what John does is, if if the others are more um, practical and functional, John is really, really spiritual. So John says things that make you really think, and they could make your brain burst if you don't really go, okay, what exactly does he mean by that? He says much more that is metaphorical, um, much more that isn't practical isn't down to earth and you have to really think about some of this but it's interesting that many people's favorite verses in the whole bible come from John so we've got John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only son um, and we've got other things about you're the vine you're the branches that comes from John so there's lots of stuff that's interesting there and what I want to do is focus on the very start of John's gospel and just explain something about it. So the first thing that John does is quite similar to Matthew and Luke. He talks about the baptism of Jesus. Now, both Matthew and Luke have also talked about what Jesus was doing when he was a little boy. So Matthew and Luke say something about the birth of Jesus and about what Jesus was like as a little boy. But John goes whacking straight in with Jesus is the word of God. And then we get a baptism and then Jesus gathers around him the disciples. Now, that happens in Luke and it happens in Matthew. So everybody knows that the disciples are called. But John puts it really, really early in his gospel. Bear with me if you're thinking this is fast. What on earth does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? So the Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapters 5, 6, 7. It's early on. But John goes straight in with three days. And the first day, he basically says, Jesus gets baptised by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water. And then on day one and two, he gathers disciples. He gets a team of people around him. Jesus, John says, doesn't do it on his own from day one. He gathers people who are broken and fallen and in. This is gathering together people who do what he says. He wants people around him who will learn from him and will. It's what rabbis did. You wouldn't just go to a school and then have 30 kids in desks facing the front with funky interactive whiteboards and all kinds of personal devices like they do in all kinds of cool schools today. You would basically align yourself to somebody and you would follow their teaching. And you wouldn't just follow their teaching by listening. You would put it into practice. You would watch and then you would model yourself on the teacher. So Jesus is gathering this group of people at the start of John's gospel and all of the other three gospels. And he's basically saying, follow me, watch me notice me listen to me see how I deal with everything and then I want you to do the same stuff so that's what's happening now it's really interesting on day three after Jesus's baptism in the book of John because they're at a wedding and they're at a wedding at a place called Cana and I love this story And I'm going to say this. One of the reasons is because I went to Cana last year and I was very fortunate. I went on a school trip. I've probably mentioned this before. And when we went to Cana, we were able to buy some wine. And so I brought home and gave some to my friend, Mr. David Spivey, and we drank some of this wine. And it's really sweet wine. So for those of you who like wine, this isn't a kind of dry, oaked taste. This is a much sweeter taste. It's really kind of honey almost. It's a lovely, lovely wine. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because at this wedding, which has happened, don't forget, it's three days after Jesus has just been baptized. There's Holy Spirit's come upon him. People are like, wow, this is the Messiah, Everybody else seems to point to him being out healing and turning people's lives around with prophesying over them. But in John's gospel, he's at a wedding drinking. Just think about that for a minute. He's at a wedding drinking. And not only is he at the wedding drinking, it's pretty obvious that his disciples are there, too, and most of his family, partly because of what it says at the end of of this bit which is that he says he then went with his disciples off to the next bit, but also partly because weddings at the time were funky whole village things. Everybody gets involved in them. They're massive affairs. Now, at the wedding, um, something goes wrong, and it's the worst thing that can ever go wrong at a party. You run out of alcohol. Now, personally, I'm not a heavy drinker, but... What is quite interesting is that at this point, they run out of wine. Now, we don't know exactly how many people were there. 100, 200, we're not entirely sure. We know it's probably going to be more than 15 or 20. But running out of wine is a bad move. And what happens then is that Jesus's mother basically says to him, "Okay, Jesus, there's a problem here. Can you do something? about it they've got no more wine now Jesus says basically why are you getting me involved my time hasn't come yet or my hour hasn't come yet Jesus's mother seems to ignore him and turns to all of the servants at the wedding and says do whatever he tells you Now, the servants there are probably tearing their hair out at that point. They've run out of wine. They're probably in big trouble. They know that these celebrations aren't going to last just for another hour. They're going to go on for possibly the rest of the day and maybe another day. But what is interesting is the servants do do exactly what Jesus wants. Now, I know that Jesus is God. I get that. But it really seems to me That Jesus was basically saying to his mum, mum, leave me alone for a little bit. I want to enjoy the party. But without really responding, his mum says, just do what he says and everything will be all right. And if you take nothing away from this morning or from the Sermon on the Mount is this. Do what he damn well says. Do what he says and everything will be all right. Now, I want to really be clear here. That doesn't mean everything will go perfectly in your life. As David was saying a little bit earlier, there are horrific things that happen to people. But the deeper you go in your walk with God, the more you realise that actually it's not those physical things that happen that actually break you. It's your lack of unity and connection with God. The worst times in life come when you feel distant from God, which I would argue is why Jesus on the cross doesn't say "Ah, it hurts. He says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? It's feeling there's no God. That is the worst thing that can happen to you. So here's the thing, we think that those vats of water, which were big stone jars, were probably between about 80 and 120 litres. Now 80 and 120 litres is pretty big, okay? It's about the size of a fairly medium water butt, just so that we're clear. And there were six of those things. So we're talking about roughly 600 litres of water that is turned into wine. And we think what those vats were is the big water vats that they would have used when people pitched up for the wedding to wash their feet. So they wouldn't necessarily have been the nice and cleanest. But Jesus takes that and turns it into sweet wine, and has an amazing party that goes on longer so the first thing is Jesus is not a grumpy soul he had a little go at his mum because he wasn't quite ready to launch into his ministry because he was enjoying the party but Jesus is not out to get you he is not out to make your life miserable he is not out to make you obey because you flip him. well will He's out to do it because the benefits and the blessings are so much more than you can ever dream of, imagine or understand. So what we're reading here is pretty simple. Do what he says. Now, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is fascinating because why did she know at the age of 30 that obeying Jesus was the safest thing to do? Why didn't she need any more things to know? Of course, what we know from Luke and we know from Matthew and Mark is that she'd seen some pretty amazing stuff happen up to that point. If we were just reading John, we wouldn't know this. But because we've had the chance to read Matthew and Luke, we know that Mary's had some fascinating stuff happen to her. She's had an angel of God appear to her and say, you're gonna carry my child, says the Lord, and you're gonna call him Jesus, and he's gonna be the savior of the people. Then she's gone fleeing to Egypt and kept safe when all of those children had been terribly and tragically killed um, in, in the area where Jesus was born. And then when Jesus is a little bit older, probably about 12, she's seen him in the temple debating with these teachers of the law and holding his own and it says really clearly in that bit she treasured these things up in her heart she treasured them up in her heart she was noticing what Jesus was doing she was watching him and thinking actually there really is something different supernatural and super spiritual about this guy So in the Bible, this idea of watching, noticing, hearing, and then doing are really closely linked. And I want to give you another example about one of my favorite stories. And this is the story of Hannah and Samuel. Now, it's an Old Testament story, and it comes in a book helpfully called Samuel, in case we forget. And Samuel's got one Samuel and two Samuel. So they're pretty early in the Bible. And in 1 Samuel, there's a really interesting story about a woman called Hannah. Now, Hannah really wants a child. Mary, on the other hand, I'm not sure, was particularly keen to have a child. I'm not sure she was desperate at that time. Hannah, on the other hand, was absolutely desperate. She wanted a child. And she basically says to God, give me a child and I will give him to you. And the child comes and the child is called Samuel. Now, there is no particular suggestion that this is a supernatural birth because she had a husband and there's nothing to suggest she was a virgin at the time. However, there's a clear link between her pleading and praying to God and God giving her a son. And the word Samuel basically means heard of God heard of God so Samuel is the epitome he exemplifies somebody who has been heard of God and Samuel then day and night goes and works in the temple but just like Jesus he hears God and he hears interesting things going on in the temple when he's a young boy And one little story about this is the fascinating story where Samuel's just going off to sleep and he hears a voice and the voice basically says, Samuel, Samuel. So he knows it's about him. So he thinks it's the old priest who's also there. Um, And you can imagine this scenario. It's dark, there's light, but it's only on candles. Samuel goes around. He goes, who is this? What's going on? And the priest says, It's not me. I'm not talking to you. And it happens three times to Samuel. He hears the voice of God three times. And on the third time, the old priest says to him, just say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Speak to me, your servant is listening. And at that point, God says something to Samuel that is not a positive thing for him to have to do. He basically says, you know, that old priest because all his sons have been doing really bad things we're going to take away the priesthood and the power from him and i'm going to give it to you samuel because you hear my voice and you do what i say so samuel has to go to the old priest again and say well i did actually hear god and what god said to me was basically when you die and it's going to be quite soon All your sons are going to lose all the power and they're going to die. And God's going to give the hearing and the power in Israel to me. Now, that's not an easy thing to hear from God when you're a little boy. Don't forget, he's a bit sleepy. He wants to go to bed. He hears this voice. He's got an awful lot of processing to do in one night. But... Because of the whole history and the heritage and the fact that his mum has dedicated him to the Lord, he is ready, he hears God, and then he does what God says. Now, a little bit later, in fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see Samuel given another message from God. And once again, it's quite a tough message. The message is basically, go to Saul and tell him, Because he was king of Israel and he didn't do exactly what I told him. I'm going to take the kinship away from him. I'm going to withdraw the power. I'm going to withdraw the authority. I'm going to withdraw the peace off him because he didn't do what I told him to do. So Samuel goes to Saul, who was the king. And this is always a bit of a scary thing to go up to the king of a nation and to say, because you've disobeyed God, things are going to go badly for you. But this is basically what Samuel says in 1 Samuel 15. He says, Saul, because you haven't done what God says, this is what's going to happen to you, because to obey is better than sacrifice. Now, Saul had realized that he'd messed up. And what he tried to do is offer a whole load of sacrifices to God. So if you imagine it now, he'd gone, "Okay, I didn't want to do what God said to me exactly. But what I'll do is I'll give him loads of money. I'll go to church more. I'll become one of the um, church trustees. I'll do loads of talks. I'll give loads of money to the poor. I'll do loads of other things. And Samuel says... I'm not actually interested in all of those things. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey God is better than loads and loads of burnt offerings. And that is not that dissimilar from the verse that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, which is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else is added to you. Now, this is a bit of a tricky thought, but I hope you come with me. God isn't so bothered with us doing, 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 doing. He's interested in us hearing and obeying. Because he doesn't want us all to be doing exactly the same things. He wants us to be obedient to what he has for us to do. And sometimes we go scrabbling around, doing, doing, doing and getting involved in all this stuff. When actually what he's saying is, hang on a minute, calm down, listen to me. If you think about the story of Mary and Martha, which is also in John. Martha is scrabbling around, doing loads of things because she thinks that's what Jesus wants. But Mary is sat there. It's a different Mary. But Mary is sat there just listening at the feet of Jesus. So the message all the way through is listen, hear, notice, and then do what Jesus wants us to do. It's not dissimilar with Jonah. Now, if you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah is basically told that he's got to go To this massive powerful city run by non-Jews, non-believers and say if you don't repent your entire nation is going to be destroyed and Jonah tries everything he possibly can to not do what God has told him. Now Anthony you're a great guy we don't want to rip into you today but it would be a bit like Anthony saying I know I'm meant to have a banner but what if I do a website instead? Or what if I don't do the banner quite that big? What if I do it on a post-it note? Or what if I don't do it now? What if I actually do it in a few months time when COVID's gone and everything's a little bit calmer? Jonah was told, go now, give them this warning so they've got a chance to change and to obey me. He doesn't do it, so God goes a bit radical on him. Now, we really would have a story if a whale had eaten Anthony in the next week because he hadn't put that banner up. But this is basically what happens to Jonah. He doesn't even get eaten. He's sat there in this massive whale and biologically, we're told this is actually possible. And then he's spewed up on a shore and it's like, seriously, God, okay, I'm going to do what you tell me. So he goes and does it. Now, let's go back to this Sermon on the Mount then. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we've got this brilliant parable about the wise man building his house on the rock and the foolish man building his house on the sand. And it's exactly the same point that we've been talking about in the Old Testament. Jesus says it's the person who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice I.e. it's the person who hears that builds a solid foundation, whereas the person who doesn't hear and put into practice will meet disaster. And the whole Sermon on the Mount comes to this point where Jesus at the start of his ministry and for the record is saying, hear my words, do them and you will be blessed. Don't be arrogant. Don't be confident and think that you know everything. Listen to me. Be humble. Seek my kingdom. Do what I say and all will go well. You will be blessed on this earth and in the next. And we see this all the way through then the New Testament. Later on in John, it says in John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We also hear, keeping to this Good Shepherd theme that we are hearing so much about, my sheep know me, and what do they do? They hear my voice. They heed my voice. They do what I say. They follow me. So once again, Jesus is saying, if you love me, you will do what I tell you. My sheep know me. They will heed my voice. We see it again in Peter. As obedient children, don't conform to the passions of your old lives. And as we know in Matthew chapter 25, the only difference between the sheep and the goats is not what they say or what they believe. It's what they did and didn't do. Now, We need to be really clear about this because it is absolutely crucial that we understand our salvation is by faith alone through grace alone. It is not our works that get us into heaven. But Jesus is really clear here that the people who love him obey what he says. And Jesus doesn't just tell us to do that. And then disappear, he tells us to do it because he is modeling it all the way through his ministry. So, if you remember, Jesus says on one occasion, I only do what I hear my father saying, I only do what I want or what my father wants me to do. And we read in Philippians that Jesus being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is modeling this obedience, doing what he hears the father say in such a way that we then can follow that example. And There are many reasons why we should do this. So the first one is, obviously, I've tried to explain that it benefits us to do what God wants us to do. We've heard during the Sermon on the Mount, what father would give his child a stone when the child asks for bread? No loving father would do that. How much more, it says, will God give good things To those who trust him. And in one version in Luke, it says, How much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who love him? So I guess the question is it's obvious that us following the words of Jesus blesses us, but it's also a blessing for others. It's very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to be salt and light. And we can only be salt and light if we are reflecting, if we are full of the goodness of the kingdom of God. There is no point, um, and on many occasions I've realised I need to get myself out the way of situations if I'm not in a good place myself. Sometimes God might use me even in my weakness, but sometimes I've got to get myself right with God because I ain't going into situations being salt and light. I'm bringing a little bit of darkness and a little bit of something very bitter. So the message for us is we need to remind ourselves that God wants us to be obedient, not just for us, but so that we can be a blessing to those around us. Now, this all sounds great, but how on earth is this possible? The Sermon on the Mount, as we've said, is at the start of Jesus's ministry. It's delivered before Jesus goes out and does all his stuff. It's delivered before he's crucified. It's delivered before he rises from the dead. It's delivered before he sends his Holy Spirit. So it is possible that one of the things we've got to bear in mind is this isn't possible to follow it's not followed. it's not possible to exhibit all of these things without the Spirit of God in us, which is why the Spirit of God coming inside us when we become believers is such a crucial part of us being able to show others the kingdom of God. So when we come to Pentecost next week, there's a beautiful link between the Spirit and the end of the gospels, and the spirit coming on the early disciples. Don't forget that they were obedient, even to going to the room that Jesus had told them to go to. So let's finish with that thought. The message here is pretty simple. God talks today. He talks to us sometimes audibly, but most of the time he talks through to us Through fairly standard means. He talks to us through the Bible. He talks to us through Christian leaders. He talks to us through sermons. He sometimes talks to us through that kind of inner voice. He doesn't normally talk to us in the most dramatic ways of massive whales turning up or of our virgins becoming pregnant. But sometimes there's biblical precedent that he does. So we mustn't rule out the absolutely extreme spiritual things that we just think, how on earth is that possible? But at the same time, we need to be in the kind of community that was sat there at the start of the Pentecost blessing, waiting together, saying, we're yours, we're open and ready to hear from you. We need to be the people who heed what Jesus is saying, who hear the word and then obey it. Bless you.